Hello, and thank you for joining us for a special in-person edition of Market Sense. I'm Heather Hedges with Fidelity. Today, we are bringing you something that our team here has been working on for months, our 2024 outlook. And our panelist roundtable is going to be discussing all of your burning questions for the year ahead, including, among other things, whether the Fed has achieved a so-called soft landing or whether a recession is on the horizon, how the presidential election could impact the markets. So to make sense of it all, I'm joined today by three amazing panelists. First up, Urian Timmer, of course, Fidelity's Director of Global Macro, who's going to be talking about the outlook for stocks and also what we might expect from the Fed this year, Urian. Denise Chisholm, Fidelity's Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, who's going to be giving us her insights on corporate earnings and what slices of the stock market to watch for in 2024. And Naveen Malwal a CFA and institutional portfolio manager here at Fidelity, who's going to be giving us some perspective on the state of the economy, also some insights into how he and his team are managing over 3 million client accounts at Fidelity. So impressive. And you're also going to be talking bonds with us today, too, yes. Naveen. So a big thank you to all of you. Thanks for making the time to be here in person. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, before we get started, I do want to just quickly share a note with our viewers. As always, if uh, any questions come to mind during this discussion that are top of mind for you, and you're watching on Fidelity's website or on LinkedIn, you can submit those questions in the comments section that you'll see there, and we'll do our best to answer those questions on future episodes of Market Sense. So we love hearing from you. All right, with that, let's get into it. Naveen, I want to start things off with you. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Um, let's talk about 2023 for a moment and sort of set the stage here for folks. So many of us will, will look back at 2023 and say that was the year of the predicted recession that never happened. We kept waiting and waiting, right? And then that shoe never dropped. It never happened. So could you set the stage for us right now on where we are right now in the economic cycle, please? I can. So thankfully at Fidelity, we have a group called the Asset Allocation Research Team, about a dozen folks who research and monitor the U.S. economy continuously. And their view is the U.S. is not in a recession. It's in a late cycle expansion. And late cycle expansion is more moderating growth, uneven growth, but still positive growth. And historically, that has meant rising stocks and bonds, but no signs of recession right now. All right. So what do you think the odds are of a recession coming in 2024? And would you say we're in better shape now than last year when we kept waiting and waiting and waiting? It feels better. So last year, I agree with you. Most of the headlines I saw were centered on this prediction of a recession is likely, interest rates are rising, inflation is high. Now it feels more mixed. Now there's a combination of folks maybe still saying that a little bit, but a lot of other voices saying perhaps the worst is behind us. Maybe the Fed is successfully bring down inflation without causing a recession. So we're all hopeful of that. But let's see what the recession angle does for a little bit. I want to leave folks with three things to think about. So number one, we learned last year, just because there's headlines around recessions doesn't mean one is definitely going to happen. Yep. So we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Number two, not every recession is the same. So the same team I touched on earlier, their research is showing that the upcoming recession might be quite a bit milder than, say, 2020 or 2008. Yep. The reasons for that are the mortgage market, the big banks in the country, the consumer financial health situation, corporate profits. They're all stronger than they were 15 years ago. And why that matters is we've had 11 recessions since 1950. 
here in the U.S., mm-hmm. and in five of those recessions, stocks actually ended up higher than when the recession began. Well, pretty counterintuitive. It is. So not every recession has to be doom and gloom for investors. Mm-hmm. So if we get no recession or mild recession, stocks could do okay. And the last thing I'll leave you with is, hey, 2020, we had a very sharp recession because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet stocks recovered and were up over 18% that year, including dividends. So even a bad recession doesn't necessarily mean bad things for the stock market. Doesn't mean bad things for the stock market. And not every recession is going to look like 2008. Right. Right. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's go now to Urian Timmer, of course, Fidelity's Director of Global Macro, and talk about the stock market a little bit. So the big storyline last year for the stock market, Urian, or one of the biggest stories you could argue was, you know, guessing what the Fed might do with interest rates. We talked about that every week, you and I, on Market Sense last year. Um, and then last month, we got this big indication from the Fed that rate cuts will likely be coming this year. How do you think interest rate policy will affect stocks this year in 2024 now? Do you still see that being a key driver of what happens with the stock market? And is this going to be the year where we can finally stop talking about the Fed so much, stop talking about it every week on our show? No. No. (laughs) Um, So interest rates matter, right? Some some investors might wonder, like, why does the stock market care about the bond market? Uh, Well, you know, when you think about valuation in the stock market, how we value the market is by calculating the present value of future cash flows. So obviously earnings matter a lot. You know, Denise will talk about that. But the interest rate with which we discount those earnings matters a lot as well. And remember in 2020, 2021, rates were at zero, bond yields were at 1%, and they rose to 5% on the bond yield, five and three eighths on the Fed funds target rate. And that that's a big move and it has an impact. So 2022 was that year of the reset for the P.E. ratio on the stock market. And then 2023, uh, the Fed it became clear that the Fed would be finishing up its rate hiking. But at the same time, the the bond market still was not done. And we hit 5% in October, not even two months ago. And then since then, rates have come down. And now the Fed is is signaling that it is indeed done. And this has has been part of the sigh of relief that the stock market has done. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interest rates always matter. Sometimes they matter more than others. And certainly over the last few years, they've mattered a lot. And I think in 2024, as we continue to look for the Fed to maybe give back some of these rate hikes, uh, they will they will matter again. Okay, so the markets are already pricing in these these rate cuts. How soon can we expect those cuts? What do you think the Fed is going to do next? Well, so here I think the market needs to digest maybe some new information because the Fed, um, you know, signaled in December at its FOMC meeting that it, it was done and through its dot plot, not to give you uh, some inside baseball jargon here, <laughs> yeah. but that, that's a way to signal what the Fed expects. And the dot plot suggested that there will be three rate cuts this year. Uh, of course, the market being like a spoiled child took the three but wants six. Mm-hmm. And six rate cuts to me, other than in a recession scenario, uh, seems like wishful thinking because uh, six rate cuts would bring the Fed funds rate down to 3% or so. Inflation is at around 3.2%. Um, and so that would mean a zero rate in after inflation. And in a soft landing scenario, that doesn't really seem plausible. So I think the Fed probably will walk back some of the very 
dovish rhetoric that is out there, and then the market will just need to absorb, and the market will survive. But but uh, I think we we kind of came into the year with maybe a little bit too much euphoria about rate cuts. Yes, there was a lot of euphoria after that December meeting of the FOMC. Yeah. Okay, Yurian, thank you. All right, Denise, your turn. One of the big surprises to many investors in the past year was the strength of corporate earnings. Earnings did contract a bit, uh, but we really didn't see the kind of weakness that some investors were fearing, I think. So first of all, was that surprising to you? And secondly, what does it tell us about how companies are positioned as we head into 2024 now? Yeah, a lot of the indicators that I'm looking at suggest that we might see an acceleration. I mean, it's sort of a two-part question. What we saw in terms of the CPI or overall inflation decelerate What happens most of the time when inflation decelerates, think of that as pricing power for corporations, is that input costs decelerate faster. And this cycle has been really no exception, with the exception that it's really been pinned wide. And that is usually very constructive for margin expansion, which is very constructive on profitability. So if we saw costs coming down on the input side, we're seeing the same thing for labor. So when you measure unit labor costs, what was different this time was that unit labor costs were growing at a pace that we we hadn't seen in 20 years, basically our investment lifetime. But now that's unwound over the last six months. So unit labor costs, the cost of your labor per unit of output that you actually get out the door and produce has come down rapidly. So that is also good for margins and good for expansion of profitability. So those are the indicators that I'm looking forward to say that 2024 is likely to be a year of strong earnings growth. Okay. And what would either a recession or a soft landing, even though I know you don't love that term, what would that mean for corporate earnings? Yeah, I mean, I think that when we think of landings, I think that one of the issues that I have with the word soft landing is that this is either the hardest soft landing we've seen or the softest hard landing. Earnings did contract, right, only 5 to 10%, but they have contracted on a quarterly basis, as did gross domestic income, which is a proxy for corporate profits, as almost did GDP, which came pretty close to contracting. So this is not really a soft landing. And when you look at all earnings contractions, 90% of the time, with the only exception being the financial crisis, even after that, earnings reaccelerate into the next year. But it sounds like the worst right. may have may already be behind us. I think you've got to be open-minded to that. Okay. Yeah. That's encouraging. Let's talk now about what this might mean for the markets this year. And Yurene, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Set the stage for us on how you see stocks positioned right now as we kick off the new year? And what do you think is the most likely direction for stocks in 2024? So when we look at the S&P 500 um, as a capitalization weighted index, meaning the bigger companies have a bigger weight or a different influence on the price of the index, um, obviously it was a very good year, you know, more than a 20% gain. Uh, Under the hood though, uh, you know, few stocks fewer stocks participated, right? So if you look at that same S&P 500 index on an equal weighted basis, which I find to be a very useful way of looking at the market because it measures kind of the breadth of the market. Yeah. Still an up year, double digits, but yeah. but not not as 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 good as, you know, the, the index driven by these, what we call the Magnificent Seven uh, mega cap growers. It's a bit deceiving, basically. It's, it's a, bit, a bit deceiving. And, and we've had periods in history where the leadership has been narrow, um, the late 90s, the early 70s. And the leadership was narrow. And one way to measure that is uh, by looking at the percentage of stocks that are outperforming the S&P index. And for last year, it was only 26%. And normally, it's closer to 50 or so. Um, Having said that, when you look at the equal weighted index, 
over time, you see a pattern. You see a rising trend line, and the market generally goes up by 10 11% per year if you have enough patience to ride out uh, you know, those drawdowns. And it goes up about two-thirds of the time, which, by the way, means it goes down one-third of the time. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But it goes up two-thirds of the time. So, time. Yeah. so historically, you have the odds you know, in your favor. And then in between that rising slope, you have periods of consolidation. And if you look at the S&P Equal Weighted Index, um, it has now gone sideways for exactly two years. Now, that's a long time yeah. for the market just to be in, in limbo, yeah. in limbo. Yeah. And so I think now that the Fed is presumably done, even if it doesn't cut rates as quickly as the market would like, when you look at that stair-step process, right, of advances, consolidation, advances, consolidation, my hunch is that, you know, the next move will be in the direction of the prevailing trend, which is up. And then the question is, and that goes right in line with what Denise is saying, um, whether we call it a soft landing or not, but a, a, a reacceleration in earnings growth, better margins, maybe some relief on the interest rate side. And then it's a question of what happens underneath the surface. Does the market broaden? Does it stay narrow? And those are questions yet to be answered. Are there any scenarios as we think about what we could possibly anticipate in 2024 that you can imagine where stocks could surprise us to a large degree this year? So I think the the surprise on the bullish side uh, would be, um, you know, that this two-year period of sideways ends up being what us chartists call a base, a basing pattern that becomes a launch pad for a next advance. And so I don't think many people, I think people have come to terms with maybe that shoe isn't going to drop and maybe the Fed has stuck the landing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think anyone is expecting, you know, a, a 20 percent uh, type of year. And, you know, we had a few soft landings over history, and one of them was in the mid-90s under Alan Greenspan, the maestro, as he was called. And he stuck the landing, you know, and after raising rates 300 basis points or three percentage points in 94, he gave back three of those rate cuts in 95. And the market in 94 went sideways, just like it did over the last two years. And 95, it went up 37%. Now, that's not a prediction, so don't hold me to that. Mm -hmm. But that would be a surprise that I think, uh, like, a, a recession wouldn't surprise anyone no. because we've all been kind of been mentally preparing right. for Right, we've been bracing ourselves. But a, a, a big up move in, in 2024, I think, would be a surprise to many. Okay. Every time you talk about sticking the landing, I think about gymnastics. I picture the Fed as a gymnast. Uh, sticking with stocks, Denise, we talked about many times last year, and Yurin just talked about this, about how last year a narrow slice of mega cap tech stocks rose by a lot, and that pulled the market higher. But the rest of the market had this sideways year. It was in limbo, as Yurian just said. What do you think about this? Do you think we will see that kind of trend repeated this year? Yeah, I mean, I have the numbers that you're in actually quoted. Yeah. We have them back to, I think, 1928. Mm -hmm. When you look back historically, obviously, it's been a narrow market in the bottom quartile of all historic instances at 26% of stocks outperforming the S&P 500 in the past year. And when you look at that historically, your sort of gut is, well, if it's only led by a few, that might you know mean weakness in the future. And it's the exact opposite. And it's monotonically, I know you liked that word last time, stair-step <laughs> pattern, very correlated, strong T-statistic for the more narrow the market is, the more likely the market is to advance. 
and the more likely the market is to broaden in the future. Okay. So it doesn't say 100% of the time, but again, the more narrow the market, usually the opposite ensues because we've been in this holding pattern for two years. And when you look back historically, the narrowness of the market only signals what has happened in the past, which is hey, stocks have kind of done nothing. And it's almost like its own sentiment indicator, where if the market has been narrow, most likely the stock market has done nothing, and most likely there is potential upside. All right, so you see it broadening Broadening in 2024. Got it. Of course, another big story in 2023, hand in hand with the rise in interest rates, was that bonds and fixed income investments became much more attractive than they had been in years because of what we were seeing with interest rates. So, Naveen, turning to you, um, let's talk about bonds. What's your outlook for the bond market for the year ahead? I think it's better than it has been in a while because of the higher yields you're pointing to. With the Fed raising rates as much as it did, a lot of bonds now have attractive yields. But on top of that, I'll go back to what Irina was sharing, that the Fed is probably done at this point raising interest rates. And what we've often seen historically is after they're done raising, they eventually start to cut. So let's bring up a chart. So this visual you're looking at is showing you a comparison of cash to bonds to stocks and a mix of different investments. So cash is in yellow, bonds are in green, Dark blue is stocks, and light blue is a mix of stocks and bonds and other investments. You can see historically in the 12 months after the Fed has done hiking interest rates that cash falls behind the other investments. Part of the story here is as the Fed eventually cuts rates, those bond prices rise. That helps the bond performance. But those lower rates actually take away from short-term investments, the yields that they carry. So they tend to perform less strongly in that environment. So based on that history, it might suggest investors could benefit from moving away, at least partly, from cash and short-term investments towards bonds and stocks and other types of investments in this market. Well, you know, Naveen, so much has been written about the estimated $6 trillion in cash that's been in the sidelines here in the U.S. this year in ultra-safe vehicles like money markets and other short-term investments. And I did the math. That works out to about 18000 per person here in the U.S. Pretty remarkable. Um, you know, and this is because investors were awaiting the outcome of the Fed's battle against inflation. So I'm glad you mentioned investors should start considering moving that cash into stocks or bonds if the Fed is done hiking rates. I know the Fed has said that that's what we can probably expect, but if the Fed does keep rates higher for longer, or if the economy does go into a recession, how would each of those scenarios, each of those risks impact the bond market? So for me, the the scenario of the Fed keeping rates high is probably the least likely. The Fed itself has said they're probably not going to do that. But if they were to keep rates at this level, still not bad for bond investors. Still have a nice yield coming in. Now let's go in the other direction. The economy slows down, the risk of recession starts to rise. Well, in that case, historically, the Fed has tended to cut rates even more aggressively. Mm. So that might help bond performance even more. But on top of that, in that scenario, maybe stocks start to struggle, experience some volatility. So that would be a nice cushion in a mix of stocks and bonds. So for those investors who are nervous about the economy or the risk of recession, owning some bonds or other sources of income may provide stability and help them experience potentially less volatility. Okay. I just felt like this year, I always envisioned the Fed not just with the, with the soft, with the sticking the landing, being a gymnast, but I also envisioned the Fed doing a dance like the tango, tango with, yeah. with inflation, you know, trying to you know, get ahead of it finally. So it's it's been interesting to watch that, Naveen. Thank you. Yurian, all right, let's talk now about the bigger picture here. We've been focusing on the U.S. landscape so far in this conversation, but we can't ignore the international outlook either, right? Uh, what are some risks or important factors that you're watching globally this year? 
Uh, well, certainly, you know, there's the geopolitical side, and it's, you know, obviously a very tragic situation, what's happening around the world. And, you know, when I when I speak to friends or meet new people at a cocktail party, whatever, that's, you know, and if they find out that I'm in the markets, like, usually the first question is, oh, my God, the Middle East, like, like you know, is that going to crash the market? And, yeah. and, um, and I always have to apologize for sounding cold-hearted, because for us as investors, we need to just look at the math, right? Yeah. And we need to decide whether geopolitical events are what we call systemically important to interest rates or earnings, because ultimately that's what's driving the markets is earnings and interest rates. And in many of these cases, there is not that link. There is obviously a humanitarian dimension, but not necessarily an economic one, at least for the U.S. I mean, there obviously are for other other regions. So, so that's kind of one thing thing that we kind of have to compartmentalize when we think about the global uh, situation. Obviously, China has been a big story. Uh, its economy has been very weak. Its market has been very weak. Um, and, you know, year after year, we're waiting for that mean reversion to kick in for emerging markets, which, of course, are heavily influenced by China versus developed markets. But as global investors or even as you and as investors, you know, we have a menu to choose from. And obviously, we have to decide how much in stocks, how much in bonds, how much in other vehicles. And Naveen's team obviously does that all day long. But then even if you if you have decided how much is going into the stock market, where, right? So it's been this magnificent seven. It's been seven stocks versus literally everything else, because what happens to those seven stocks then determines the relative performance of uh, value stocks, of small cap stocks, of non-U.S. stocks. And if the pendulum is swinging away from the magnificent seven to a more broadening, then chances are that the rest of the world will actually finally start uh, to participate in this rally, because those stocks, like the S&P Equal Weighted Index, have been just sitting around. And when you think about the valuation discrepancy that has now arisen, you know, the U.S. S&P is trading at 20 times earnings. Um, Europe is at 13.9. Japan's at 14. Like Germany and the U.K. are at 11 times earnings. Wow. Latin America is at nine times earnings. Yes. And the valuation gap alone is not enough to catalyze that mean reversion, uh, but it certainly can amplify it once that happens because you have a convergence. And so there's a lot of opportunities beyond. And, and I think this is a, a good, uh, a, a positive kind of spin on things is that, you know, some people have missed the rally because they were waiting for that recession that hasn't so far come. Um, and uh, But the good news is that they haven't necessarily missed the boat because the leadership has been narrow. And there's a lot of hundreds and thousands of stocks that have just sort of been waiting uh, to get reawoken. And, and maybe that'll be a theme for 2024. Okay. All right. But the U.S. could lead the way for what's happening globally. It could still lead the way, but there, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. Okay. All right, Urian. Uh, well, Urian talked a little bit there on um, some opportunities, but let's talk further about investing opportunities, Denise. Um, you know, one of your big calls in 2023 was the consumer discretionary sector. Of course, non-essential goods and services. We're talking about things like movies and concerts. Taylor Swift, we talked about that this year, and Barbenheimer, and uh, we absolutely saw that play out. So I have to give you credit because you nailed that one. 
If the economy stays strong, what sectors do you think could potentially surprise us this year? Yeah, I mean, consumer discretionary was a lot like technology and that Magnificent Seven kind of leadership, and they're economically sensitive sectors. So to the extent that earnings do, in fact, recover and re-accelerate, which I just talked about why I think that that's my base case, you will likely see those economically sensitive sectors continue to lead the market. So the leadership that we've seen is likely to continue. But back to the broadening out point, I do think that we are shifting in terms of landscapes. If you think about 2023, what we saw was higher interest rates and lower or contracting earnings growth. And 2024 might bring the exact opposite, right? A reacceleration in earnings with the Fed potentially cutting in their dot plot of 75 basis points. Those incremental odds tend to benefit those interest rate sensitive sectors like real estate and like financials. And when you add on to things like financials as a sector on a median basis is trading less than 10 times in terms of their valuation, that's pretty rare. And that's historically predictive of outperformance. Also, where you see in small caps, where back to those valuations, spreads, forget international for a second, just within the U.S. market, the gap between small caps and large caps is very extreme. That gap is usually, I I like to call it an expression of fear, um, where usually that gives you a signal of what the market is discounting. So in some ways, your risk reward is very skewed towards small caps and towards these interest rate sensitives, along with your base case of the economically sensitive sectors outperforming like technology and consumer discretionary. So those are the sectors you think could lead if the economy is strong. What if we do enter into a recession? What would be the top performing sectors in that scenario? Yeah, the market is obviously one piece of the equation, but the other is, to your point, the margin of safety. But I think we have to be careful with the knee-jerk reaction that, well, if we go into a recession, then low volatility stocks or sectors like consumer staples or utilities or healthcare are likely to lead. Yes, that's true when you look historically, but not by as much as you would think. And even in the sell-off that we've seen of the 10% correction we saw relatively recently, we didn't see consumer staples, utilities, or Minval, uh, or uh, you know those kind of stocks where low volatility stocks actually outperform. That only happens 9% of the time, historically, and it's usually a flag that something in the fundamentals are different. And it's true, when you look at consumer staples and to a lesser extent healthcare, we've shifted from a trend of rising margins in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to declining margins. And in fact, for some of those low vol stocks, they've actually had the worst margins of the data that I see going back to the 60s. So in some ways, the margin of safety might not be where you think it is is. Hmm. And that's why I focus mostly on what the market is discounting. So when you see fear and valuation spreads wide in small caps and consumer discretionary and valuation significant in financials and real estate, that actually skews your risk reward, despite the fact that the economy might still, there there are always risks. So you are looking at what the market is discounting. Correct. Naveen. Yes. Let's talk about income-oriented investors now. Where do you see the biggest opportunities in that space? Right. So if some investors are drawn to either income or risk management by investing in bonds or other areas that are typically income providing. And with higher yields out there now, there's a lot of opportunities depending on exactly what the investor is looking for. So some of the basic building blocks, I would say, include treasuries, corporate bonds, and high yield. But treasury bonds, extremely safe investments. Their current yield is right around 4%, just above 4%. So you can get that kind of yield for a few years by investing in treasuries. The other nice thing with treasuries, we talked about perhaps interest rates are going to head lower at some point. Right. Well, historically, those treasuries tend to benefit quite a bit. 
when those rates are falling, especially treasuries with longer maturities or longer durations. So something else for investors to think about. Longer duration treasuries. Now, beyond that, the corporate bond market, that's a space where you can get a lot of investment grade debt. For just a bit more volatility, you get more yield there as well versus treasuries. Another space that is very popular for investors. One that's maybe less popular, but folks do invest in is high yield bonds where the yield is more attractive, north of 7% currently. However, there's more volatility involved with those. So be considerate about the risk you're taking on by doing that. So there are some basic building blocks that we actually use quite often in our portfolios, but there's so many other things beyond that. So whether it's looking at something like floating rate debt or dividend paying stocks or real estate stocks or master limited partnerships, there's a lot of opportunities for different kinds of yield, but again, different kinds of risk as well. And as I'm saying these things out loud, I imagine folks in the audience are wondering, what is he talking about? So <laughs> it can get complicated. Maybe, maybe not. We've got, we've got a, a we range of viewers. A wide range of yeah. viewers, but yeah. some might be scratching their heads right now. I know right. mom is scratching your head right now, right? <laughs> so for those folks, I might say, hey, one, Fidelity does have a lot of resources on its website to educate investors on these different possibilities. And then beyond that, some investors may benefit from investing either in a fund or a managed account where a professional can manage these decisions for them, help them get a diversified mix of sources of income, and just look for a way of getting more balanced income and risk management all under one umbrella. Okay, yeah, might might benefit from some help, professional help there with some guidance. So your mom's watching right now? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Hi, Naveen's mom. Hi, Mrs. Malwell. Um, so we mentioned at the top of the show that you're part of a team that manages uh, 3 million client accounts. Right. Pretty impressive. So how are you uh, incorporating what we just talked about, some of these ideas and opportunities into your clients' portfolios and risks as well? Yes. And tell us a little bit about how you're positioning them for, for 2024. It's actually a nice summary of this whole discussion. So putting everything together, this environment we're in right now, yes, it doesn't feel like a recession is imminent, but the risks haven't exactly gone away either. So our team right now is focused on managing risk for our client accounts. There's three big ways we're doing, we're doing this. One of them is the highest level thinking about the mix of stocks and bonds. So let's think about a, a mix of a 60% stock portfolio. Right now, instead of 60% stocks, we own just a bit less than that for our well-diversified clients. And we have a bit more than 40% invested in bonds and other investments. The reason for this is historically in late cycle, markets do rally, but you also get these pockets of just shocks and uh, turbulence in the market. So this can help protect investors from those periods of market stress. Okay. Now, beyond that, there's a couple other things I'd point to. One is looking at diversification. So we've talked a lot about parts of the market that are overvalued, undervalued. And what Yuri spelled out for stocks rhymes with how we're managing a lot of the assets. So thinking first at the asset class level, it's not just U.S. stocks. It's U.S. stocks. It's non-U.S. stocks. And then with bonds, yes, we have investment-grade bonds, but we're also investing in high-yield bonds. And we're rounding it out with some small positions in areas like commodities, which is energy or metals or agricultural products and even small alternative funds. And the goal of all of this is, hey, let's get you a healthy return, but try to just smooth out the ride along the way as well. And the last thing I'll point to as an example within stocks, this rhymes with what Yorin was saying earlier, is, hey, those, those tech growth stocks did great last year, but they're kind of expensive at this point, looking at price to earnings ratios. So we have exposure to core stock. We have exposure to those stocks, but we also have exposure to core stocks value stocks, small company stocks, and international stocks in the hopes that if the markets do experience volatility, perhaps these less expensive areas will experience less volatility. Or conversely, if there is a rally, if things do start to broaden out to Denise's point, then these parts of the market may benefit more than the more expensive parts that did really well last year. Okay. 
something to think about there. Yep. Thank you, Naveen. Think Many things, yes. yes. Taking notes in my head. Uh, let's sit on some viewer questions now because, of course, we're always talking about how we want to hear from you, our viewers, and we really value your questions and opinions so much. So we wanted to turn first to Denise because Denise wears many hats here at Fidelity. One of them is that you are one of our resident historians here. And, you know, we're, we're heading into a presidential election year this year. And a lot of viewers have expressed some nagging concerns that the presidential election could, in their minds, potentially impact the economy and the markets. So historically, what kind of an impact have we seen during presidential election years on the markets? And what can we expect this year as we get ready for the presidential election? Now, just looking at the data back to the 1930s, an election year is pretty most often a good year for stocks. I think we have 80% odds of an advancing market. We're one notch down from the sweet spot of market returns that usually comes the year following the midterm elections. So, you know, not as sweet as we've just seen, but still not bad for stocks. But when you look through history, what you'll definitely find is an insignificant rolling correlation, meaning that elections are less and less causal to stock performance. And it's more and more predictive by looking at things like the underlying economy or specifically earnings growth. So as much as we are worried about an election and what it might do, the core drivers of the market actually don't change. And it is everything that we just talked about in terms of starting point on valuation, potential for inflation, and potential for an improvement in profitability. All right, Urian, another viewer question that we've gotten a lot this year, and, and it was another one of the big stories from 2023, was the resurgence of Bitcoin. Uh, what is your outlook for this year for digital assets? So I, I focus mostly on Bitcoin, and Bitcoin actually turned 15 years old last week. Wow, it's uh, hard to believe it. Bitcoin's a teenager. And so <laughs> Bitcoin's a teenager, and it's interesting because a lot of people called Bitcoin and still are uh, either a fad or a bubble, and it's interesting as a as a an observer of market history, as as Denise is, uh, you know, I've studied every bubble under the sun, and usually when bubbles die, they do not come back to life. Uh -huh. And the Bitcoin, phoenix doesn't rise from the and, ashes. And Bitcoin keeps rising, you know, like no matter what you throw at it, right? It's had three crypto winters. It had anything you can think of as an existential crisis, and it's still standing. And I think, you know, 15 years in, uh, that needs to be, uh, it needs to be respected. Uh, and so I, I do think that uh, Bitcoin, maybe some other digital assets, but I, I look at Bitcoin differently. I look at it as a, an aspirational store of value and aspirational money, whereas the other cryptos are more kind of tech innovations. Um, I, I think it increasingly is earning its spot on the menu of a portfolio kind of in the alternatives bucket. And so uh, obviously 2023 was a big year. Um, and I think 2024, it probably won't be as big a year. But I, I think, you know, generally speaking, um, the fact that Bitcoin has survived another crisis, I think, bodes well for its, its longevity. Okay, something to watch. All right. And with that, we have hit the lightning round now. I'm excited for this. All right. So first up. Urian, biggest surprise of 2023? Uh, the shoe that didn't drop. I, I right. think that, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll keep it there. <laughs> <laughs> Denise? I mean, I think to have a surprise, you have to think that the market makes intuitive sense. And I, honestly, I don't when I look through history. I mean, there's more often than that's not the case. But I will say it's kind of shocking that we had a banking crisis and financial stocks did better than energy stocks and we're actually up on the air. Okay, Naveen. And in my seat, I saw a lot of investors miss the rally. So we had a strong job market, 
falling inflation, stocks are rising, and still people were so nervous by headlines, the shoe that didn't drop, as Arian said, they, they stayed out and they missed out, unfortunately. Disappointing for them. What's the biggest risk that we can all prepare for and watch out for in 2024? What do you think, Arian? Uh, it would be the shoe dropping. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it would shock anyone, but the market is not priced for it, right? The market is priced for a soft landing. Uh, market's looking for 11% earnings growth for the Fed to cut rates. And so if the opposite happens in both of those uh, areas, the market would have to do some repricing. Biggest risks to watch out for today. I think risks are tough. Even if you state what they are, it's hard to know whether or not they're systemic or whether or not the market can actually climb that wall of worry. So what I focus on instead of risk, which is not to say that the risks aren't out there, but is what the market is discounting. And when I see wide valuation spreads, I see that as the market discounting a lot. Okay, Naveen? For me, it's the the investor, are they going to get engaged in the market or not? So between the recession headlines, it'll probably still be around for a while. The election headlines, it'll inevitably come up. The political back and forth that'll happen. A lot of folks might feel tempted just to sit and wait, despite what Denise said about elections not really mattering as much for market cycles. So that might be a risk for personal investors in terms of how they're managing their own accounts. Okay, risk that they're not getting in the game. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about something a little bit on a brighter note now. Instead of risks, let's talk about maybe the biggest unexpected but positive surprise that could happen in 2024. What do you think, Urian? Uh, it would be a, what I call a bullish broadening. So a repeat of 95, um, the market lifting out of this two-year range and the rotation into everything that's been left behind. That, that I think, would be a pretty damn bullish. <laughs> Can we say that? <laughs> darn, darn. <laughs> Denise. Yeah, I mean, much like the 95 parallel, productivity continuing to increase, which means that we'll be able to see strong wage growth, but with tepid inflation. So, And I think that we haven't seen anything like that really since the 90s. Okay. And Naveen? I'd say maybe the international space, right? So there are still headlines out there, risks out there. But perhaps if, as you're as saying, the market broadens out, well, the valuations are cheaper. And that part of the world, if the news starts to turn better, inflation concerns fade, recession concerns fade, those stocks could rally and either keep up or pass U.S. stocks this year. Okay. And the last question of the show. So we've talked a lot about investing ideas throughout this. Um, but if you could each pick just one, just one high, highest conviction idea, one highest conviction idea to leave our viewers with, what would that be? And let's go in reverse order and we'll start with you, Naveen, on that sure. one. Sure. I've been part of my team for almost 10 years now. And the investors who seem to succeed over time are the ones who come up with a financial plan and stick with it. So keep it simple. That's my high conviction idea. Work either with a professional or do it on your own, but come up with a plan and go for it. Okay. It would be the area of the market that I think is discounting the recession the most, which would be small caps. And you're in. Agree, and I'll add to that, uh, and to both of what both of them said, um, don't market time. Market time, I've been in this business for four decades, and uh, it's too difficult. Don't try to time the market. All right. I think that's a great note to end things on. You got the last word there, Urian. Thank you so much. And you recently wrote something that I thought was kind of poetic. You said that any market outlook is part science and part art, part analysis, part intuition. And so I guess that makes you guys all talented scientists and artists. And fantastic discussion. 
all three of you, Yuri and Denise, Naveen, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with all of us. I always learn something when I get to sit down with you. It's always so exciting to, to be with you. Uh, and now for our audience, if you aren't already watching on a mobile device, you'll want to grab those cell phones right now and open your camera and scan the QR code there to take you to Fidelity's 2024 Investing Outlook experience for more investing insights and resources for this new year and beyond. Or you can just type in the URL that you see on the screen, fidelity.com slash outlook. And you can also sign up for our weekly Viewpoints newsletters there. Uh, again, a huge thanks to our really insightful experts, Yurian, Denise, and Naveen. On behalf of the three of them, I'm Heather Hedges. I hope you have a great week and a prosperous new year. Lower yields. Treasury securities typically pay less interest than other securities in exchange for lower default or credit risk. Interest rate risk. Treasuries are susceptible to fluctuations in interest rates, with the degree of volatility increasing with the amount of time until maturity. As rates rise, prices will typically decline. Call risk. Some Treasury securities carry call provisions that allow the bonds to be retired prior to stated maturity. This typically occurs when rates fall. Inflation risk. With relatively low yields, income produced by treasuries may be lower than the rate of inflation. This does not apply to tips, which are inflation protected. Credit or default risk. Investors need to be aware that all bonds have the risk of default. Investors should monitor current events, as well as the ratio of national debt to gross domestic product, treasury yields, credit ratings, and the weaknesses of the dollar for signs that default risk may be rising. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Diversification and or asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against loss. In general, the bond market is volatile and fixed income securities carry interest rate risk. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall and vice versa. This effect is usually more pronounced for longer term securities. Fixed income securities also carry inflation risk, liquidity risk, call risk, and credit and default risks for both issuers and counterparties. Unlike individual bonds, most bond funds do not have a maturity date, so holding them until maturity to avoid losses caused by price volatility is not possible. Any fixed income securities sold or redeemed prior to maturity may be subject to loss. Foreign markets can be more volatile than U.S. markets due to increased risk of adverse issuer, political, market, or economic developments, all of which are magnified in emerging markets. These risks are particularly significant for investments that focus on a single country or region. High-yield, non-investment-grade bonds involve greater price volatility and risk of default than investment-grade bonds. Floating-rate loans generally are subject to restrictions on resale. They sometimes trade infrequently in the secondary market, so may be more difficult to value, buy, or sell. A floating-rate loan might not be fully collateralized which may cause it to decline significantly in value. Changes in real estate values or economic conditions can have a positive or negative effect on issuers in the real estate industry. The securities of smaller, less well-known companies can be more volatile than those of larger companies. Bitcoin, as an asset class, is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Bitcoin may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Bitcoin is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investing directly in Bitcoin does not offer you the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Fidelity does not provide legal or tax advice. The information herein is general and educational in nature and should not be considered legal or tax advice. Tax laws and regulations are complex and subject to change, which can materially impact investment results. Fidelity cannot guarantee that the information herein is accurate, complete, or timely. Fidelity makes no warranties with regard to such information or results obtained by its use and disclaims any liability arising out of your use of or any tax position taken in reliance on such information. Consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific situation. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative 
executive purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at that time and may change based on market and other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. This podcast is intended for U.S. persons only and is not a solicitation for any Fidelity product or service. This podcast is provided for your personal non-commercial use and is the copyrighted work of FMR LLC. You may not reproduce this podcast in whole or in part in any form without the permission of FMR LLC. To the extent any investment information in this material is deemed to be a recommendation, it is not meant to be impartial investment advice or advice in a fiduciary capacity and is not intended to be used as a primary basis for you or your client's investment decisions. Fidelity and its representatives may have a conflict of interest in the products or services mentioned in this material because they have a financial interest in them and receive compensation directly or indirectly in connection with the management, distribution, or servicing of these products or services, including Fidelity funds, certain third-party funds and products, and certain investment services. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Stock markets are volatile and can fluctuate significantly in response to company, industry, political, regulatory, market, or economic developments. Investing in stock involves risks, including the loss of principal. Fidelity Wealth Services provides non-discretionary financial planning and discretionary investment management through one or more portfolio advisory services accounts for a fee. Advisory services offered by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, FPWA, a registered investment advisor. Discretionary portfolio management services provided by Strategic Advisors, LLC, Strategic Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, FBS, and custodial and related services provided by National Financial Services, LLC, NFS. Each a member, NYSE, NSI, PC, FPWA, FBS, and NFS are Fidelity Investments companies. This information is intended to be educational and is not tailored to the investment needs of any specific investor. Personal and workplace investment products are provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC, 900 Salem Street, Smithfield, Rhode Island, 02917.